0: We're in the book of Judges, and we are studying the Judges, not the book, but the individuals. We started back with with, uh, Moses, and we're going to press our way all the way to Samuel. And so some of these are minor ones, but we don't want to neglect them just because we have uh, not a lot of biblical um, information about them um, in the narrative here in Judges, but we do have some other historical documents as well, and we're going to be addressing one issue tonight um, that's going to come up several times, and we're going to try to um, get our finger on the pulse of that uh, tonight um, while we're handling Ehud. And so I'm in Judges chapter 3, beginning verse 12, and we'll read to the uh, end of the chapter, which includes one verse on a guy named Shamgar, and we'll briefly address him um, tonight as well. And so, uh, we'll read the balance of the book of Judges here of chapter 3. It says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length, and, it fastened, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So you came to him now, he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then he who had reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then had went out through the porch, and shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, He is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. All right, let's go Lord in prayer before we look into uh, this account. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word, and pray that as we look into it, that you might direct our thoughts, our uh, meditations, that we might uh, recognize your hand, and the variety of mechanisms that you use and people to deliver uh, and to provide your uh, blessing uh, and to those who cry out to you. And we, again, pray your Spirit's direction in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, pretty straightforward passage, um, but we're a little disturbed, right? Um, sometimes just the Bible's bluntness kind of gets us in our uh, modern world, and... Uh, where we aren't allowed to be say those kind of things. He's just a very fat man. Um, And the description of what really amounts to an assassination. And we might look at this and try to sugarcoat it somehow, um, but that is essentially all that we have. Um, Along with the disturbing picture of what we have before us um, is the brevity of... Well, we don't really have a call of God. We don't really have any kind of description of what, how did He judge Israel? They had, peace, or they had peace and, and security for 80 years after this guy did this. That's a pretty long time, um, according to the period of the judges, um, for there to be peace in that. Usually, it only lasted, you know, 40 40 years, or as long as the judge was alive. Either Ehud lived that long, um, or Shamgar was part of that period of time as well. But they had these 80 years. And so uh, whatever he did was very effective. Not only just the assassination of the king, of, uh, um, but how he ruled. And it does again stipulate that as long as he was alive, that he judged. That he was the judge of Israel. And so um, we have um, the uh, description of what all we know about this is that it says God would raise him up. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about some of the factual information, because this is one of the texts that uh, textual critics, those that want to basically tear out pages and pages and pages of your Bible, well, this is one of the accounts that they take issue with. They take issue with it for several reasons. Um and we'll get to the main reason here in a little bit, but I'm going to address a couple of them along the way. Um, We first of all have the description of the city of Palms, that this was the home base, if you will, of of Eglon's presence on the east side of the Jordan. Now, if you don't know where Moab is, um, Moab is on the south, south, no, I'm sorry, west the southeastern side of the Jordan, On the west side of the Jordan there is the city of Palms. Now, we know what the city of Palms is, and people say, well, that's Jericho. But Jericho was destroyed. So how could he be at Jericho? Well, remember that when they destroyed Jericho, there's a curse put on Jericho that whoever rebuilt it, that they would, you know, bury one at the beginning and bury one at the end. And so there's a curse on whoever rebuilt Jericho. It hadn't been rebuilt. But the site of Jericho was a strategic one. It was a very important site right along the Jordan River. Um, it was strategic for multiple reasons, for the agriculture around it uh, and the access to the river um, because it was the predominant north-south avenue on this side, of, on the east side of uh, the mountain range that separates it from Jerusalem and the and the valley, the Megiddo Valley, that goes up that side. And then, of course, there's another range. Then you have the Mediterranean. So it becomes one of the main ways to get north-south. And so the city of Palms um, was really not, it was in the site of Jericho, and we believe just outside of it. Uh, That Essentially what happened is that they, because of the curse that was put on Jericho, no one wanted to rebuild that city, so they just went outside the wall and established a community called the city of Palms. And uh, so this is Jericho. We're back at Jericho where the conquest of Canaan uh, really started under Joshua. We're back there in that region. And, of course, um, it says that uh, God strengthened Eglon um, to judge his people. And so if you know a little history of of Moab, um, we, of course, uh, probably the most familiar we are with Moab is who? Ruth. Book of Ruth. Moabitus, Yes. Correct. So you have, like I said, the agricultural value of it there. That you have all the your the access and the water, and you have lots of reasons to be there. But from a military military perspective, this was very important for him. Now this would have been um, this whole. People say, well, they're crossing the Jordan River like there's nothing. Well, they're fording it. They're not. And this tells us what time of year we we're at, that we are um, either late fall, um, we are certainly not in the spring where Hebron is melting off and the Jordan is, is really flowing strong. And so they're fording the river here, and so it tells us a period of time. We know kind of where they are at. But um, Eglon comes in, and uh, God strengthens him. Um, he doesn't do it by himself. He picks up a couple of... Uh, allies, in verse 13. Uh, and so he gets the people of Ammon and, um, and Amalek. And so these are, Amalek, of course, doesn't exist today. Uh, Ammon does, does. That's the capital of Jordan today. And so um, Daniel, of course, talks that in the end times there's going to be um, three entities that are not going to be involved in the peace treaty with Israel. Um, Moab and, and Ammon are two of those three. And, um, and so we have... Uh, these on the, on the, and remember also that when Moses came up, that this is an area they circumvented. They went around this because this was not part of their inheritance. And so they, they circumvent that area. So there's some animosity here, but there's also a lot of interchanges. So Eglon is raised up by God uh, and strengthened uh, to uh, gain this political advantage over Israel and serves there for 18 years. Now, um, in verse 15 we have, when the children of Israel cry out to the Lord, the Lord raise up a deliverer for them. And this is the extent of the call of Ehud we have. And so we don't have... In interaction, we're going to have a lot of interaction with when Gideon comes along, and we're going to see a familial relationship, um, much like Samuel when we get to Samson and, and the development of him. Um, but God raised him up. We do not really told how old he is, um, but God put it in his heart to uh, deliver his people, um, and uh, and we, we kind of intimate that he was pretty young. We intimate that simply because of how long. There is peace for 80 years, and we kind of think, well, he might have been a pretty young man, um, and, uh, and and hence the king was lowering his guard against a, a fairly young person. Uh, and you got to think of, you know, of course, David and Goliath. That here comes this youth out. You send this child out here to to take me on. So again, uh, some precedent for that because here's Ehud, probably a very young man. Um, Again, we don't know for sure, but we infer that from the length of time that um, Israel has rest um, after um, this event, and so um, he agrees to um, be the delivery man for the tribute that they send. And this is very common. This was um, the idea of coming in and eradicating the people was really foreign. To warfare, um, the Israelites were to do that, and um, that was pretty radical. And uh, we can talk a little bit, maybe if you want to, about why God wanted that to happen—that um, every man, woman, child, animal, everything. Um, but we find that uh, most of the time, what most kings did was they set up a—what what, here, the, here's the fancy thing that makes you know I went to seminary—the suzerain vassal treaty format. And so they, they would set up where they were the king and, and vassal, simply servant. And so you set up a servant. And so they would farm the land. They would be the vassal. And they would send the value of that, the tribute, to the overlording king. And so essentially you would, and sometimes that was pretty substantial. Um, we're not talking about a 10% tithe or something like that. Sometimes we're talking about 50 to 70% of what you grew and raised and profited, had to go to the overlord, if you will, the suzerain. And so um, this is the format. So he's bringing uh, the tribute of the period, which again tells us that we're probably in a post-harvest period, right? So that kind of lines up with the idea that the Jordan River is not very full at this point, point. and so he's bringing it. And now we're, we're introduced a little bit about Ehud. And uh, he's a Benjaminite, and uh, we have an interesting term in Hebrew that is translated in your Bible, left-handed. Um, it, there is no Hebrew for left-handed. Um, it is a term that says, not right-handed. <laughs> it's really a negative term. That, uh, and it's also the same term used for someone who's ambidextrous, that uses both hands and, and a lot of commentators come to this and say, well, um, and by the way, this is this is common among Benjaminites. In fact, most of the ambidextrous or left-handed soldiers that we encounter are from the tribe of Benjamin. Kind of interesting, isn't it? That they are all identified out of that tribe, that they are, can fight with the left and the right. And so it's that the left is stronger and that they are more adept with it than the right. And uh, so we find that he characterizes himself according to his tribe, um, and he has prepared himself. So he recognizes his purpose is to go there to assassinate um, Eglon. He is ready to do that, and uh, he fashions for himself a sword. Now, you and I might think, well, what's the big deal about that? But remember, what is typical? What do we find when the Philistines are ruling Israel? What's the first thing they do? Yeah, you don't have access to metallurgy. We take away swords and, and we issue you your your hoes and your plows and we and we take them back when the, when you're done with them and, and we are they very carefully monitor metallurgy. And so you don't get to have you know stacks of metal laying around that you can just put on a stone and make a blade out of. So this is probably a great risk he's taken to do this. Um, and so he's put together a small dagger. Um, and it's a cubit. A cubit is elbowed t- to the uh, tip of your finger. So you're talking about this length, and he's going to tie it into his thigh. He's going to hide it. And uh, um, again, homemade, but sufficient for the task. And, so, and the word hilt there is not like what you think of on Lord of the Rings or something with the sword just the very elaborate. Um, no, it, it's really just the handle. Um, and it's probably just a smoothed-over thing that maybe he stuck into a piece of wood or cork or something like that. Very, So don't think he, he's just cramming this thing into the belly. Um, it's likely just a, a, a rounded-off area that he can handle without cutting himself. And so here he goes to deliver his thing. And uh, the tribute, he comes in, he dismisses the rest of his party. He's going to take all of the risk upon himself. He's not going to endanger the rest of the party. Um, and uh, he just turns back, and his whole thing is, I have a message from God. You might say, well, that's kind of interesting. Why would Eglon be concerned about that? We dismiss, I think, too quickly the fact that most of these suzerains knew the history of Israel. Who is their God? Look, remember what their God did to the Egyptians? Remember what their God's been doing to to Jericho? I mean, the guy is set up shop with, he can see what happened to Jericho. It's right outside the window. He knows what happened there. And so when an Israelite comes to you and says, I have a message from God, um, he is ready to receive it with all respect. And so in our mind, standing up, um, doesn't, doesn't necessarily show that, but in, in, the, in the Hebrew and the Arabic world, um, you stand up to show respect for, and so that's why um, it's kind of interesting when you think of when you um, read God's word in the synagogue, the reader sits and everyone else stands. So as soon as he gets this message, I have a message from God. Well, does he have a message from God? <laughs> Uh, Yeah, it's an object lesson that's pretty pointed. Um, And so he doesn't have a verbal message from God, but he does have this one. And so, again, the whole idea is the man has stood up, which apparently is quite the endeavor on his part, to stand up, to show that I'm ready to receive a message from the Lord, and puts him in a place uh, where he's the teacher, and I'm going to learn and uh, so we see, well, maybe there's a reason God had raised up this man to dominate Israel for the last 18 years. And of course, we see the text, out comes the blade, and a cubit blade um, goes through a man, all the way through. Um, even a pretty large man, that, yeah, maybe sideways, um, and, and he's going to thrust it all the way in. And um, and downward. And you say, how do you know it's downward? And what does it mean by the entrails came out? Um, that's actually one of the really hard Hebrew expressions to translate. Um, and in fact, when you get to the um, Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox Bible, it actually says the dirt came out. Um, the, and essentially uh, that it came out as anus. And so all the way through his body and uh, um, that it He drove it all the way through and drove it through him. So it went absorbed into his flesh and driven all the way out. And so the man dies. Obviously, deliverance has uh, occurred, and Ehud has figured out a way to get himself out um, without being detected uh, for a while, to give himself some span of time. And uh, in the delay, it allows him to... Get out beyond, and in verse 26 is the problem, one of the problem areas. Verse 26, you would escape while they delayed and pass beyond the stone images and escape to sirah Now, the stone images are at Gilgal. Okay, this is Gilgal, and just if you don't remember any history of what Gilgal is, when Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground in the days of Joshua, Remember, the ark went out there and it stood in the midst, and Israel was to build a monument of stone in the Jordan River and also to carry out 12 stones to the other side, to the west side, to build a monument and a memorial of their crossing of the Jordan River. And so, um, and, it, and again, there are several translation issues here, some difficulty we have whether this was were idols that were placed around that monument, or whether it was referring to the monument itself. Um, It could easily be referring to this well-known memorial to the fact of what God had done that day so many years ago. But he gets out beyond those, and that seems to be a perimeter that, uh, at that point, um, he either has some people ready, um, uh, he has some uh, advance notice because it seems in verse 27 when he arrived he blew the trumpet in the mountains Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them and uh, essentially what they're going to do is go right back down there and they know the main fording place of the Jordan they know the spot where you can ford it and it's kind of interesting I always wondered if you could see the stones when it was in low river if you could see the stones in the middle of the river that they put there in the middle of the Jordan when the, when the water was down. I always wondered that. I don't, I don't know that I've ever looked it up or asked anyone that's been there during low uh, flow, but um, I always wonder if they were there. But there is a fording point near Gilgal, apparently, and so he calls even. And the indication is, is the Ephraimites are waiting to see if the assassination attempt is successful. This is not like they had no clue it was happening, but as soon as they heard the trumpet, they were going to rush down there, and they were going to seal off the escape route for any Moabites left in the region, uh, specifically from the city of Palms, outside Jericho. And so um, they're going to cut off that fording spot that everyone would have taken themselves to, um, and realize that this is not very far north from the Dead Sea. And so once you get in the Dead Sea, your flow just goes, you know, just really dribbles out um, into that. Uh, but you have here a fording point. At some point, there's a place that they are getting across the Jordan River in its Lofo, and they're not really attacking as much as they are. We're just going to cut them off, and we're going to keep any Moabites from going back across. And uh, they gain a victory that day because every Moabite that recognized, oh man, they've assassinated it, something's in the works. They realize something is going on and um, they are going to reestablish themselves. They're going to try to get back into the land of Moab as the indication. And we find that um, uh, they seal that off and they go down, go to the fords leading to Moab and didn't allow anyone to cross over. And so, as people were coming to try to get back to Moab, realizing that there must be a rebellion, there must be an insurrection, uh, Israel must be uh, uh, planning something, that uh, the men of Moab tried to uh, retreat. Now, uh, the issue, the 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 biggest issue that people take with this is um, in verse 29, and uh, the issue is with the numbers. And I just need to share with you a couple of things that I hope don't mess you up too much. (laughs) After our study on on translations work and all that, I don't know how I can do that hardly anymore. But uh, one of the Hebrew words, uh, let me just back up. We have a very difficult time understanding how the ancient Hebrews counted large numbers. We just do. Um, We know how modern Hebrew does it, but how ancient Hebrew did it, um, there's a lot of conjectures, a lot of argumentation, because we really are at a loss to really explain how they did big numbers. Um, And here's one of the problems, is the word translated here, thousand, is also the same word for chieftain, or um, great person, a clan leader. And so... Um, whenever you come to the word thousand in Hebrew, um, realize that that word is the same word in other passages that is translated uh, clan leader, chieftain, uh, chief of a clan. And so um, and here is the reason why this becomes important is because we have very little archaeology. there are these kinds of numbers in Moab. Uh, these are not 10,000 people. These are 10,000 mighty, men of valor. And there's just no indication that there's that size of an army in this region um, at this point, nor the fact that Ehud could muster an army to address that. Does that mean that every time you read the word thousand that we need to make that less? No. Like I said, we just don't understand very well how the ancient numerical system worked. So could it have been 10,000 mighty men of valor that were slaughtered at this ford? Possibly. Um, The likelihood is is that this was not in one attack, but as they came to cross. And so it is possible. Um, It is also possible that this is representative that these were 10 chieftains of moab that these men were mighty men of valor now unless you think well what's the big deal of defeating 10 guys well these 10 guys would never have traveled by themselves and so they are representative of a group of a unit we just don't know what size that unit might have been and so and and, and lest you think that could be a that i'm trying to disparage this number too much um, I want you to think about what Abram was able to muster out of his own servants to go attack. The people that, that was victorious over Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Abram says, I'm to go rescue Lot. And so he gets together an army out of his own servants. And so you have to think about Abram would have been a chieftain. And you have to think in those kinds of terms. Whether each of these men had a thousand uh, with them is not likely. But it is certain that they were not by themselves. But these were the mighty men of Moab, and they come in with their entourage. And whether that was a hundred or three hundred or whatever it was, however many it would have been, um, they are encountering these armies of Israel. Um, And again, we don't know how well equipped they were um, in terms of uh, the the men of Ephraim, uh, the, the the children of Israel there. And remember, most of these judges were regional. Uh, this, This is obviously this region that we're talking about. And so the men of Ephraim, of the mountains of Ephraim of Israel come down, and we find they are able to subdue Moab, taking out essentially all the chiefs, the captains and their units, that would have been the suppressing elements for the land. So these are the guys that kept everyone else in check. And so as they encountered these uh, either 10,000 people or 10 chieftains and their units, um, they destroyed them. And with no record of any losses on Israel's side, um, just a phenomenal uh, victory for Israel. And so rather than saying, well, we've got to rip this story out, I think it's, it's better for us to understand just some good working knowledge of the era, of the period, of, the, of what was going on in that day, of, of what warfare was like back then, uh, and, and uh, what we know about um, Jordan, and yes, I, or I'm sorry, the Jericho and so we, we don't have to just say, oh, this can't be true. Um, it can be true, but yes, we do have to have some willingness to recognize that there are some translation issues involved here, and there are some things we just don't fully understand. Um, but the account is true, and there's, there's evidence that there was Moabite influence there, um, and so we do have a deliverance. And so the, in addition to this, we also have, which, which we would almost expect. Now remember, as you look at Israel, if here's the Jordan River. Um, Moab is on the east side. They've come into the west bank, which is the east side of Israel. It would not be unexpected, should it, that if Eglon has subdued a large region of the west bank, that the Philistines would take that as an opportunity to exert themselves as well. And so it is uh, very likely that um, within the time of Ehud, after him was Shamgar. And why do we think Shamgar might be a co-judge with Ehud? Well, because it breaks the pattern. We don't have Israel was good, and then Ehud died, and then they were bad, and then God raised up Shamgar. In fact, we're going to go right back to Ehud at the beginning of chapter 4. It says, when Ehud is dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, and so um, the likelihood is is that Shamgar was a contemporary of Ehud, or shortly after his death, um, that uh, there was also... An incursion of Philistines, which would have been on the west side of Israel, Gaza Strip, okay, and so they would have moved east as Moab moved west, and basically brought most of southern Israel under subjection. And so while God raised up Ehud on the, I get my east and west on the west side of Israel, God raised up Shamgar for the east. But that was a lesser incursion. And probably not necessarily that God raised it up as much as they just took the opportunity, recognizing that Israel in Israel's uh, weakness. Um, and so whether it was after Ehud's act and victory, or whether it was after Ehud's life, that's the question in verse 31. Um, but after his act of deliverance, there was, I would hold to there was also Shamgar over there on the other side of Jerusalem, on the east on the west side of Jerusalem dealing with the Philistines. And so they would have come in on that far side of the range and on this side of that of that along the Jordan Valley, you have Ehud bringing deliverance. And so God is securing the border of Israel for and giving them true rest uh, during this period of time. And of course the Philistines are going to, uh, really uh, 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 become uh, the, the key players much later when we get to um, some of the later judges. And of course, it comes to mind with Samson extensively because almost all of his dealt with Philistines. They're going to be um, exalted during that period. And so we uh, know that who did more than just assassinate one king? Um, it says that as long as he lived, Israel remembered to do what's right. And so, while all we have in our biblical record is an act of assassination that you might take issue with a little bit, um, we can again see in chapter 4, verse 1, that his influence kept Israel on the right track, apparently, for 80 years. That they had rest. That there was that strong of an influence that he did have a true judgeship there that that called Israel out of the sin, the evil, that whatever evil it was that they had done. Uh, in verse 12, that brought them under the subjection of Eglon, king of Moab, we find that uh, they... Do not commit that evil again until Ehud is dead. And so then the Lord finds it necessary to raise up another judge. So, uh, again, this is one of those accounts that textual critics have taken a task. And we can um, buckle under and say, oh, we don't understand. Or we can step back and say, well, let's just see what it actually says. And that's where some of our other translations and the Greek Septuagint helps us a lot um and, and also a knowledge of some of the times and the, um, of this period uh, in Israel's history. Okay? Good little study, and uh, yeah, God sometimes does dramatic things and sometimes is very apparent. Oh well, yeah, if you cut off the head of the body and then you cut off the 10, top men and their groups, what does Moab have left? We assume that that was the king, and who's going to surround the king? Who's going to guard the king? You're not going to get your weakest generals to do that. You're going to get your best. So these were all mighty men of valor, and and, uh, we tend not to focus on individuals much today. Um, When we look at history of war, we tend to look at mass units, Um, But that's not true of most of the history of warfare. Uh, If you've ever read the Iliad, and you go through the Greek description of the Trojan War, for example, what do they do? Do they talk about mass? No, they say, here's one guy. And a whole group of people are trying to take down one guy. And he is just slaughtering them. That one guy. And when we say Shamgar take out 600 Philistines, I mean, this is a powerful man. I mean, he didn't use a sword. He didn't have one. Ehud took the risk of making a sword, but this guy didn't. And so he used what's available, and much like Samson, a forerunner of Samson. He's going to use the jawbone. Um, well, so does Shamgar, and you say he took out 600. Yes, and in ancient warfare, that was expected. You had to go after their heroes. And yes, in the Iliad, they they talk about, well, you know, here's this guy and we had to send all these people and he slaughtered all of these hundreds of people before they finally subdued him. And here's this guy and they just went through one Greek hero after another in the war. And if you have read that, you understand, begin to understand why 10 mighty men of valor means something to them with their guard, with their unit. Um, And again, we're going to see it in the Samuel and the Kings, right? Um, Jonathan goes up there with his sword bearer. Let's take him on! Not uncommon in ancient warfare to have one man stand his ground and take on a huge number. Um, These men were incredible warriors. When the Bible says they're mighty men of valor, um, you need to make them really big, strong guys, and that was not uncommon. Okay. By the time of David, it becomes less common that you have giants, but at early periods, the, it was not uncommon for these guys to be enormously strong men. And the Samsons of the uh, of you know Shamgar is comparable to a Samson in my in my consideration. Um, These guys were powerful men. And uh, that's why it's so shameful that we get to the David and Goliath narrative and here's one champion, take him out. Throw everything you got at him and take him out because he's the strength of the whole Philistine army. Take him out and you're done. And, And why isn't the biggest guy among us, remember Saul was a head taller than everybody, why isn't he ready to go take him out? He didn't trust the Lord, so he sent a child, a young man, because he trusts the Lord. In the name of the Lord, I'm going to do this. And so that's what these men are doing. Right? Let's have our prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this account. We pray in thanksgiving for the clarity that is there um, that has really been brought out over these, really just in the last 50, 60 years. And And we thank you sometimes for the attacks on your word because it strengthens our understanding of it and gives us even greater confidence in it. And so Lord we rejoice. And Lord we do uh, recognize that all of this was caused by sin. And that demanded the subjection and then re- their repentance that, that allowed for the um, deliverance. And we pray that uh, we might be found not needful of the Latter, because we have not fallen into the former. And we pray you might guard our hearts to follow after you all our days. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.